Great, thank you, Vissi. Thank you very much. And thank you, Mike, for your prayers. Uh, and good evening to you. It's great to uh, see you. Hope you had a good Christmas and uh, New Year. It's uh, great to be back together again, isn't it? After a week, uh, week or so away. Wonderful. If you'd like to keep that uh, passage open in front of you, it'd be a great help uh, to me. We're going to spend some time looking, uh, looking at it over the next few minutes. Uh, I wonder what makes you stressed. Maybe Christmas makes you stressed, I don't know. Some people, uh, it does, doesn't it? Uh, well, psychologists say that one of the most stressful events that a human being can uh, experience is having a baby, apparently. And you can kind of see where that comes from, can't you? You know, the, the, the exhaustion, the new routines, just the, the kind of the sheer desperate panic of having this small child who's dependent on you. Uh, it, it, you, can, you can imagine why it's a pretty stressful experience. Uh, fortunately, unlike uh, Mary and Joseph, most new parents don't have to deal with a murderous tyrant as well, which is what we have here, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> or at least we didn't when we had Timothy, fortunately, as far as I'm aware. Uh, we don't know quite what the timings are um, with this story. Uh, it could be anything up to a year, I suppose, after um, Jesus, was, uh, Jesus was born. Uh, but, but relatively soon, at least, after Jesus' birth, uh, Mary and Joseph are forced to flee Egypt to escape um, Herod's clutches. I think that must have been pretty stressful <laughs> for them. Even if you're dealing with a, a child who's maybe a year or so old, uh, that is a pretty stressful thing to have to do. And yet the truth is that amid all the stress, uh, Matthew is very clear from this passage that there's much more going on than we might initially anticipate in these early events of Jesus' life, these events that we're really easy, it's very easy just to fast forward over and kind of flick the page over. We've done Christmas, we're now flicking over and getting to the real meat of the story. Actually, Matthew says there's something going on here. There's a looking back and a looking forwards as well. It's very appropriate, isn't it, for New Year? A looking back and a looking forwards. There's a looking back to some of the great themes and the great events of the life of the people of God that the Bible records for us in the Old Testament. But actually there's a looking forward as well. There's a looking forward because Matthew tells us that this child in some way is going to grow up to fulfill those events in a way that nobody could have possibly imagined. Uh, These events are going to be accomplished again at a deeper level by the Lord Jesus. Uh, If you've uh, noticed that when we were reading that, uh, Matthew kind of structures this little section around three quotes uh, from the prophets. And I I just propose to to kind of follow his lead, and we're going to take each of these sort of events um, in turn, as it were, around the the quotes. So let's have a look at the first one, shall we? Uh, The escape to Egypt, uh, which I think tells us about the exodus and a promise of redemption. Exodus and the promise of redemption. Well, why did the angel tell Mary and Joseph to go to Egypt to escape? Why did, what was special about Egypt? Well, Egypt was about 90 miles southwest of Bethlehem. Uh, it was also outside Herod's jurisdiction. Uh, so it was a kind of an obvious place to go, really. Um, if you were going to go anywhere to escape, that was a pretty good place uh, to choose. Uh, Most cities in Egypt in this time would have had a pretty thriving expat Jewish community. Because they were so close, lots of Jews would go and set up home in in Egypt. Uh, So there was a kind of obvious network there for them to to go to. They'd go, they could find a city, they could find friends, support, uh, a synagogue to worship in. It it made a lot of sense uh, practically for them. But even though there were practical reasons, uh, 
as we said, Matthew, Matthew is telling us here that there's something else deeper that's going on in their decision-making. Uh, because the escape to Egypt is actually a fulfillment of something that God had promised many years before through one of the prophets, through the prophet uh, Hosea, verse 15. Matthew tells us, So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, that, that quote there is uh, it's from uh, chapter 11 in Hosea. Uh, and it's when the prophet Hosea is remembering Moses leading God's people out of slavery in Egypt. It was the event that uh, we call the Exodus, the uh, great event of Israel's history. Uh, probably of all the events in Israel's history, the Exodus was the, the, the main one. Um, it, it's almost impossible to overstate just how significant the Exodus was to the life of the people of God. Uh, it was central to their national identity. I, I guess maybe a parallel in that sense is a bit like something like Dunkirk or the Blitz, you know, and we look back on that, don't we, and we kind of see that as the, the epitome of, of, of kind of the British national character. They looked back and they saw the Exodus as being one of those significant uh, events informing them as a nation. But more than that, it was a pointer to God, uh, and critically to God's character. Uh, his nature as the deliverer of his people, the one who was faithful, the saviour to his people. And so by by quoting from Hosea like this, uh, Matthew is linking Jesus in with this. And he's not just looking back and linking Jesus in some way with this uh, this Exodus event, this Passover, to give it another name, uh, event. But he's also looking forward because he's saying that actually in in, in some deeper way, this work of deliverance is going to happen again. Uh, This isn't just another refugee family fleeing. It it is that in one level, of course. But actually, it's more than that. Uh, Matthew is saying, this is a repeat of the Exodus. That great event in the life of the people of God is happening in some way again, just as in another way, in a deeper way, it's going to happen in the future. This baby Jesus, Jesus is is God's true son and servant in a way that actually the nation of Israel never could be. Uh, Hosea quotes here, he says, out of Egypt I called my son. And in some sense here, he is of course talking about the nation of Israel, that they were God's children. But actually in the light of the Lord Jesus, we can see that Jesus fulfills this in a much deeper way. Uh, He is faithful to God as the Son of God, in a way that nobody else could be. And just as that deliverance from slavery in Egypt, all those years ago, the the people looked back on uh, and celebrated again and again, just as that pointed to a future work of deliverance, that God would yet again deliver his people, so Matthew is drawing the strands together and saying, guys, you know what, this is where it's going to happen. This is the child who is going to fulfill this. He is the one who will deliver, or or redeem, if you want to use an alternative word, redeem the people of God from their slavery to sin. The Apostle Paul put it like this, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus died on the cross, because he shed his blood, he bought you and me uh, from our sins. We have been uh, released from the slavery of sin. The clue is in his name, the name Jesus, or, or Yeshua, if you read it in Hebrew. Literally, it means God to the rescue. And it's there, isn't it? 
Uh, he is the saviour in a way uh, that uh, Moses even could not be. Uh, during the Second World War, when uh, Hitler attacked Russia, there was a, a famous cartoon that was published uh, showing him kind of being held by this enormous bear. And the, the caption of the, um, of the cartoon was Hitler saying, uh, I've caught him, but he won't let me go. I mean, it was ridiculous, wasn't it? Because clearly, if you saw the cartoon, uh, the bear had Hitler, and he was never, there was no way in which uh, he'd caught him. And of course, it was true in history. If you know your history, you watched uh, Stalingrad or something like that, uh, actually, Hitler never could take Russia. It was Russia that, uh, that got him. It was a delusion. And in a sense, I think that's an illustration of, of sin at work in each of our lives. Uh, sin is very good at giving us the illusion of control. Uh, how many times have we said, oh, well, I, I don't, I, it doesn't have me in its grip, I, I, I'll never do it again. I, I can stop when I want to stop. The sad truth is it's often not like that. Uh, sin has us in its grip. We, in some way, we're enslaved to it. We find that at this time of year, don't we, when we're making New Year's resolutions. Probably all of us are thinking about, uh, you know, New Year, New You, as, the, uh, as everyone uh, tells us to think about. But I guess if you're anything like me, you probably think of these things, and then by February, it's all gone a bit wrong, and you're back to old ways. Uh, it's because uh, however many New Year's resolutions we make, whether we try and make resolutions not to gossip, or whether it's resolutions to pray more, maybe it's resolutions to be a bit more content with our lives. Uh, the sad truth is that we can't escape the slavery of our sinful hearts. We can't do it by ourselves, at least. It's not a question of just trying to work harder and put in more resolutions. But actually, the flight of the baby Jesus to Egypt is a pointer, actually, that things can be different. We can actually be free from the slavery of sin in our lives. We can be free because Jesus has come to be our deliverer. It really is God to the rescue, as his name says. On the cross, he purchased us by his blood. If we're trusting in him, then we have been freed from the slavery of sin. Uh, the ropes have been cut, the chains are gone, we've been set free. Free to worship him, free to, to live as his treasured possession. I don't know how you're planning to start this new year, whether you've got resolutions in your mind, I'm not sure, get fitter, work less, socialise more, I don't know. Why not, friends, resolve to rely on Jesus this new year? He's the one who's done it all. He's the deliverer. It's God to the rescue. Not Will to the rescue, not Sam to the rescue, not Beryl to the rescue, but Jesus. Jesus is the one who is our deliverer. He's the one who's brought us from the slavery of sin. Let's move on, shall we? Let's have a look at the uh, second uh, sort of um, event in this early part of Jesus' life, which is the, the, the slaughter of the children. The slaughter of the children. And I think the slaughter of the children tells us, uh, looks, helps us look back to the exile, but it looks forward to a promise of restoration. Exile and the promise of restoration. Uh, we live in a fairly sheltered Western world, I think, don't we? And it's very easy, I think, to, to forget about the cruelty of human beings to one another. There are plenty of people across the world uh, who could tell stories of that. There are people here in our own church in Holy Trinity who have been fleeing in the last couple of years or earlier um, murderous regimes. Uh, and here we do have that in stark uh, relief, don't we? It, it is a brutal tale that we have here. Uh, if you were feeling festive as you came in, you're probably not feeling festive anymore having read this uh, reading. I'm sorry, it doesn't feel very appropriate, does it? But actually here, even 
in the Christmas story, there is a, a story of pain and bloodshed, pain alongside the joy. Uh, we find this, uh, this story quite shocking, uh, the killing of the innocents, uh, and I think we probably should do. But actually the sad truth is that for Herod it wasn't out of character at all. Uh, Herod was a past master at assassinations. Uh, when he took the throne, uh, he'd killed over 300 of the uh, Sanhedrin, who were the main Jewish supreme court. So it was quite a lot, even to, uh, 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 to kick off with. Uh, things got worse. Later on in his reign, he managed to kill his wife. Uh, he managed to kill his mother-in-law, and he killed three of his sons as well. Uh, he was a horrible individual. Uh, it didn't even stop when he died. On his deathbed, he ordered that uh, all of the most powerful men in Jerusalem... Uh, should be killed as well, just to make sure that nobody could steal in and, uh, and, and nick the throne from him. Uh, his was a life of bloodshed. Uh, and, the, and the sad truth is that actually this event that Matthew records for us really is barely a footnote in his life, actually. There probably would have been maybe two dozen children under two at this time. Bethlehem's only a, a small town. It's a fairly small town now. But it was especially small uh, then. Uh, really, it probably barely registered And I think, incidentally, that's probably one of the reasons why uh, there's no other record of this event apart from the New Testament. Sometimes people have tried to imply that 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 shows that uh, Matthew's lying to us. But I think the truth is that uh, it it really didn't register in the annals of history because Herod was such a monster. It is, isn't it, at the most basic level, a, a stark reminder that Jesus was right when he said that he came not to bring peace but a sword. Uh, the response of Herod to the birth of God's king it is a response that actually is matched in every single human heart that refuses to let Jesus be king, that refuses to bow the knee to him, that refuses to submit to him. The truth is that deep down none of us want to give up the throne to Jesus. All of us would rather be in charge. We want to run life in our own way. And yet the sad truth is that Uh, that's not how it can be. Just as Herod couldn't defy Jesus, so ultimately neither can you or I. One day Jesus, the king who came as a baby, will return again in glory. Uh, And every uh, every tongue will confess his name and every knee will bow, whether they like it or not. That is the truth of this story. But actually, again, Matthew tells us that there's a deeper truth as well. There's a truth that goes back uh, looking into Israel's history. And you can see it again, can't you, when we look at the quotation, verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Uh, This is the prophet Jeremiah. He's, He's picturing the people of Israel being led away into exile. And as they do so, they're passing Ramah, which was the uh, birthplace of Rachel, who was the wife of Jacob. And you can read about her being buried in Genesis uh, 35. Uh, So serious is the exile for the nation of Israel that the prophet uh, pictures Rachel in her grave weeping over the states of her people. Things are that bad. This is serious business. Uh, If we could say that the Exodus was the great kind of high point of Israel's history... The exile was the great low point. Uh, I don't know how much you know of the story, but let me try and fill in some of the details. Uh, After the exodus, after they escaped from Egypt, uh, God's people had had about 40 years wandering in the desert, 
before entering into the land that God had set aside for them and had promised them. Uh, He said that he was going to dwell there with them and they could enjoy it and be his people. Uh, The problem was it didn't quite turn out like that. Uh, The people turned away from God. The things just get worse and worse and worse as the kings come and the judges judges come and the kings come. And eventually it just gets worse and worse. The The nation of Israel gets divided into two. And eventually they find themselves under God's judgment. And uh, the people are taken into captivity, firstly by the Assyrians, and then by uh, the Babylonians. It's a pretty sorry tale, really. It's not a pleasant situation. Ultimately, they end up under God's judgment. But amazingly, if we read on in that chapter in Jeremiah that uh, Matthew quotes from, uh, there's a great promise of hope towards the end of it. There's a great promise. It says that God will forgive his people and will forget their sin. It's Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 34, if you want to look at that. Uh, It starts with sorrow, but it ends with joy. And I think that by quoting from this chapter, Matthew is linking Jesus both with that sadness that uh, Jeremiah is talking about, but also wonderfully uh, with that promise as well. You see, right from the very beginning, uh, the Bible tells us that in some sense all of humanity has been in exile uh, from God. Uh, Of course, you remember back in uh, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve turned their back on God, and they were banished from uh, the Garden. And with it, they were banished from God's presence. They couldn't uh, be with him in the way that God had intended. And the wonderful promise of both of Jeremiah, but also of Matthew here, is that in the person of Jesus, there is hope of a restoration. In some way, Eden can be restored that fellowship that human beings enjoyed with God, that perfect world where everything was right and God was king and everything was just as God had intended it to be, can in some way be restored. How can that happen? Well, if we read on through uh, the Gospels, we find out. Uh, On the cross, Jesus was the one who endured exile for the people of God. Remember the quote, Uh, from the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus wasn't just being melodramatic. He he was expressing something deeply real. As he bore the sin of God's people on the cross, he was in some way exiled from his father. He bore the, 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 the separation that we should have borne. And because he bore it in some way, that restores you and I to full relationship with God our Father. And more than that, it restores uh, creation as well. Because the Bible tells us that the end of the story is Eden restored. Uh, The new heavens, the new earth, uh, the world restored, creation restored to how God intended it to be. This sad, tragic story of the killing of the children in Bethlehem, yes, is tragic, it's sorrowful. But wonderfully, it looks on to the joy of the new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. I don't know whether you or somebody who looks forward to Christmas, or maybe you're quite glad that it's over. I don't know. But I read recently that a survey from Tesco suggested that at least one in seven people actually dreaded Christmas. Why? Because they felt under pressure to have a perfect Christmas. If that's something that kind of registers with you. But I think for a lot of people, it does. Uh, often our, our, the, the adverts and maybe the pressure of our friends and our family gets to people. We, we want things to be perfect and to be just as they should be. 
Uh, sadly, the Bible tells us that actually that's a vain hope, because nothing this side of eternity will be perfect. Uh, we live in a world that's been damaged by sin. There are good things, of course there are, but they're never as good as they could be, uh, and, they're not, uh, and there are plenty of things that are not good at all. And this sad story from Matthew is sad, and it points us on to a wonderful promise that actually does, life doesn't have to be like that. One day, Jesus will return, and he will usher in the new creation. Uh, we will enjoy a perfect world, a world that is without sin, without sorrow, without sickness, a world that is perfect. It's restored to just as God has always intended it to be, with Jesus ruling as the perfect king. The very last words of Jesus recorded in the Bible are, Behold, I'm coming soon. And the Bible writer replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Isn't that a great thing to be echoing with the Bible writers? Uh, This sad story points us on to a wonderful truth. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to restore the world to how it should be. Well, let's look very uh, lastly at uh, the last bit where Mary and Joseph return to Nazareth. And I think this tells us about the promise of Emmanuel and the promise of relationship. Emmanuel and the promise of relationship. I think it was um, Benjamin Franklin who said that death and taxes are the only certainties in life. Um, It's true for us. Uh, I think it's true for for tyrants as well because in 4 BC, uh, Herod died and uh, he couldn't uh, outlive live forever. And his kingdom ended up being divided between his, uh, his three sons. Uh, unfortunately, Judea, where Bethlehem was, was left to his son Archelaus, who, if anything, was even worse than his father had been. Uh, when he came to the throne, he had 3,000 of Judea's most powerful men killed when he was crowned. Just mind boggles, doesn't it? Uh, so it's no surprise that the, um, the angel uh, suggested to uh, Joseph and uh, Mary not to go back to to, uh, to, uh, to Bethlehem, and they, uh, they followed his advice and returned to Nazareth in uh, Galilee, uh, we're told. Uh, again, it's practical. It makes sense. It's God preserving them in his mercy and in his providence. But actually, it's more than that, because it's actually what God had planned uh, all along, we're told. Uh, verse 23, uh, Joseph went and lived in a town called Nazareth, and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. What was said? that he would be called a Nazarene. God had planned all along that his son would dwell in Nazareth. What sets this quotation apart, though, from the other two, is the fact that Matthew here isn't actually quoting directly from one of the prophets. The other two were direct quotations. You can go and look them up. Uh, You will never find this uh, quotation exactly in the Old Testament because it's not there. What Matthew is actually doing is he's taking two big themes of the prophets, and he's kind of wedging them together in, uh, in, this, in, in this sort of, uh, it's not a really a quote, but he's kind of, sort of, it's not really a direct quote, as it were. He's, he's, he's putting it together and saying that in some way this is being uh, fulfilled. What are these two big themes that uh, Matthew is uh, drawing together? Well, the first is that the, the promise that the, the Messiah, the promised uh, king of God, uh, was going to be a branch of King David's line. He was going to be a shoot that sprung up after the fire of judgment. There are lots of uh, references, particularly in the uh, prophecies of Isaiah, to a branch springing up, a branch of 
David's line. We hear that read at, um, at Christmas, don't we? Uh, the Hebrew for branch is nazare, which sounds very similar to Nazareth. It's a kind of um, a sort of word association, as it were. Uh, king David was the great king of Israel. The Bible tells us that he was a man after God's own heart. He, he was the, the great king uh, that uh, Israel looked back to. And yet the promise of the Bible is that as good as King David was, he had his flaws, but God was going to send an even greater king, uh, great David's greater son, who would come and shepherd his people faithfully, like no other earthly king could manage, and around whom not only Israel but all the nations would gather as well. Matthew is making something astonishing here, isn't he? He is saying that in the coming of this baby, that king has come. The king is here and he's setting up his kingdom. The promise of the prophets is coming true. But alongside that promise of the Messiah being one from David's line, there was a second uh, promise in the Old Testament. And it was that the Messiah would be, uh, yes, he'd be a king, but he would also be despised and he would be rejected. And it makes sense, therefore, that his hometown was Nazareth. Nazareth was a stopping point. It's on the main road between uh, Syria and Egypt. uh, And it was, frankly, a bit of a backwater. Um, Perhaps a good parallel is to say it was the Newport Pagnell of Palestine. You wouldn't go there particularly to visit Newport Pagnell or to visit Nazareth. You basically stop there for a wee and a cup of coffee on the way to a journey, maybe a stopover in the travel lodge. It was a nobody place, really. You wouldn't go there particularly. It's not a particularly nice place to go to even now, to be frankly honest. It was one of those places that people forgot about. It was a bit of a butt of jokes. If if Alan Parch had been around in Palestine, he probably would have come from Nazareth, to be honest, as it were. It was a bit of a kind of uh, a sneering place. You get a hint of that, actually, from the Gospels. You remember in uh, John's Gospel, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus is calling the disciples, and Philip comes to Nathanael and tells him that he's found the, the Messiah. And what does Nathanael say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He doesn't believe it. That's why. People thought it was a waste of time. It was a silly little place. Nothing good could come out of Nazareth. Waste of space. And yet that's just as the prophets had promised. Listen to what Isaiah says. This is Isaiah, chapter 53, one of the most famous chapters of the Old Testament. This is what Isaiah says about the Messiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This child, the child set to grow up in a nowhere town, is actually God, who is pleased to dwell with his people. One of the great church fathers, Irenaeus, said this, he became what we are, that we might become what he is. He is Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Many years ago, the uh, BBC produced a series of TV programmes exploring all the major world religions. And the title they gave the series was uh, Man in Search of God. Uh, Probably made sense for quite a lot of world religions. But actually the truth is that for Christianity, it's the complete opposite. It's always actually been God in search of man. It was God who continued to seek his wayward children. 
even when they'd rejected him, and they rejected him constantly all the way through uh, history. It was God who came and, and chose to submit to the indignity of poverty, to be born and laid in a manger, to live in this nowhere town, to grow up, to be rejected, to die a death of a criminal on a cross. In order that you and I might be restored to relationship with God. I don't know if you've been to Bethlehem, but if you go to Bethlehem, there's a big church called the Church of the Nativity that's been built over this supposed site of um, where Jesus was born. It's the oldest church, I think, in Christendom. It, it was built by Constantine, so which tells you something. Uh, it was sort of 300 uh, AD or so. Uh, and one of the features of um, the Church of the Nativity is what's called the, um, the Door of Humility. The way into the um, Church of the Nativity is through this tiny door, and it really is very small. It's about sort of that high. And you have to get on your hands and knees and to, uh, to crawl in. And I've always thought there's something very appropriate about that, isn't there? That actually, the way to approach the baby Jesus is on our knees in worship and adoration. And I think that question confronts all of us this new year, doesn't it? Uh, what are we going to make of Jesus, this king, this, this baby born... Who grew up to die? Are we going to enthrone him as king in our hearts, or are we going to reject him and uh, and push him away? Uh, John promised. He said this. Uh, he came to his own, and yet his own did not receive him. And that's been true ever since. Ever since his birth, the world has rejected Jesus. They tried to kill him. They crucified him. Uh, even now, as he's risen and exalted. Uh, the world has nothing to do with him. But then John continues, uh, to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You might say not only did he gave, give the right, he gives the right, even now, to become the children of God. When we do bow the knee to Jesus, when we let him be Lord of our lives, when we know that he is our humble, perfect king, our willing uh, loving Saviour, we can know that relationship that we were made for. Emmanuel, God with us. We can be children of our Heavenly Father all over again. Maybe Mary and Joseph could have done without that stress of fleeing from Herod with a small child. But I'm very glad that they did so. Because actually in doing so, they give us three precious insights, don't they? Into the purposes of God, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Redemption from sin's grip. Restoration from the spoil of sin. And relationship renewed after the separation of sin. Truly, O come, let us adore him. He is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you so much that uh, you came as the prophets had promised when the fullness of time had come. And we thank you so much that you were obedient to the call of your Father. We thank you that you bore the shame of the cross. You bore the exile that we should have experienced. In order that we might be freed from the slavery of sin. That we might know Eden restored. And that we might be restored to be the children of God. And we pray that this new year you would be uh, king of all of our hearts. We would bow the knee to you. That you would be enthroned on our hearts, and that you would be Lord uh, of ourselves and of this church, for your glory's sake. Amen.